What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I've got Caitlin Maud from Austin. Caitlin is the CEO of Current Forward. What's up, Caitlin? Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about taboos today, specifically around strategy and planning. But before we do this, give us a little bit of an autobiography, Caitlin. What do you do? How long have you done it? Where have you done it? Well, I think it's fun because you and I have um, similar backgrounds, but not overlapping backgrounds. So I actually started in the music industry as well. Um, Out of art school, I worked in radio and radio hasn't been doing great. (laughs) Needless to say, uh, I was about 18 months out of graduation from design school and I got laid off. And so uh, the good people uh, at Arnold Worldwide in Boston gave me a job uh, entry level job, and from there, I've I've been in a strategy role for more than ten years now. About six years ago, I started freelancing, and in this year is my first year um, as the CEO of my own consultancy. So I've grown, bringing three partners on to my business this year, and I'm excited to bring that out into the wild and kind of change my career path to businesswoman instead of just solo strategy professional. I love it. Well, here's, here's a trick. I did radio for five years and I didn't get paid, so I couldn't technically <laughs> get made redundant. That's the best way to do it. I was really smart. Uh, and what kind, of, uh, what kind of work are you doing at Current Forward? We're really focused on culture. So strategy at this point is, is huge, which is amazing. Strategy is about thinking. It's about adding value to the creative process as far as I'm concerned. Um, the area we're really excited about is this idea of cultural capital. And when we think about what brands mean, you can control certain touch points that your brand has with consumers, but ultimately your success as a brand lives in the perception of the consumer, which is influenced by their needs, which is influenced by the cultural climate and kind of the time that you're existing in. So we're partnering with brands to help them understand how they can learn from culture, how they can learn from their consumers and then adjust their strategies either operationally or from a comms perspective accordingly to what makes sense for the times that we're living in. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, let's get into taboos. What I, what I like about this word is uh, if I'm being a little bit of a provocateur, I think it's useful to think of insights as taboos in some way. And I know a lot of people are like, mm, insights are supposed to help businesses. They're not taboos. But I like the idea of a taboo being a proxy for an insight because it challenges people to think through things more into less explored spaces. A hundred percent. If it makes you think, if it makes you stop, um, and even jumping off of the word provocateur, if there's something provocative about it, it gives you an opportunity to do one of two things. You can judge it or you can get curious about it. And I think what we do best is get curious about things. Because to me, that's where an insight probably lives. That's where there's some behavior or motivation that we can start to use to think about how to do things differently or inspire a new way of doing things. Totally. And I think to be a little bit challenging to people, if you're newish to a strategy career, you're trying to get to insights. If you spend six months thinking of them more as taboos, you can always write it in a way that fits in the culture in which you're operating. You know, there, there are certain agencies and companies around the world where you can just say the most provocative stuff and people are like, yeah, I love that. I think the majority of business cultures aren't comfortable with that. But to think yeah. in your head and to write it to yourself and inside as a taboo, and then to try to work out how to write it in a way that the culture will acknowledge and use. 
I think you're going to get to better work. You just might get a little bit schizo. That's a, you know, a hundred percent. Also from the consumer perspective, when you're talking to them in your interviews or when you're in your focus groups, what are they not saying and why aren't they saying it? What do, what are their real motivations? Why are they saying it in such a way that they want to please you? But what is really happening at home? <laughs> yeah. How do you, do you have little techniques to, to probe into taboos um, when you're interviewing people? Asking why, uh, I know that's something, I think you and Rachel Mercer actually talked about that a lot, about asking why is like the core tenant to being a great strategist. But beyond just asking why, building empathy so in, and trust with the person that you're talking to or with the group that you're talking to is key. I think especially as we're trained in corporate settings to be great facilitators and be great moderators. There's precise ways of doing things that don't often include things like rapport building with your subjects. And it starts to dehumanize them and turn them into data instead of people. And I think if you can do anything to clear the air at the beginning of the conversation, um, to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel safe, you're going into the conversation on a much stronger footing to go places that they might not typically go in a conversation with a stranger hmm. than if you weren't um, to make them feel comfortable at the beginning. And that, to me, I'm from New England. So to me, that looks like self-deprecation a lot, making jokes, uh, anything we can do to clear any lingering tension in the air before we get started and, and let them know that I'm, I'm along with them. Great eye contact good body language that shows I'm receptive and, and I'm engaged in the conversation. Some of those signs really start to put people at ease. So when you do ask why, or you do leave a moment for a really un potentially uncomfortable silence in the conversation, that they feel comfortable filling that silence with something they may not just tell the host of a popular podcast, for example. <laughs> I was, I was going to say self-deprecation. It's a technique that stand-up comedians use where many of them will have a sentence or two that will make the audience feel superior. And when the audience feels superior, then, you know, because a lot of stand-up comedy, the psychology of it is often about superiority. The rapport becomes a little wilder. I do the same thing. When I'm interviewing people in America, I have to point out my accent. I make a yeah. little bit of a joke about it. And I know that a lot of people do like Australians. So I have a slight advantage. This is what I'm told. I have a slight advantage. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I also have to say that I've lived here for a while because if I'm interviewing someone in you know, a, a small town in the Midwest, for example, they might worry that I haven't heard about the local I don't know, basketball team or, or, or something. Yeah. Else, so, but I totally agree. Your one, homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are there specific questions that you ask? And like one of, I started, I've started to ask people, I know market researchers and academics might not like it, but sometimes I'll say, is there something about this topic that people really close to you don't know that you do? something like that, right? Like I kind of try to try to get in a nice non-judgmental way once I've established rapport. And the answers to that are sometimes really interesting. Sometimes there are no answers. Yeah. Do you have a question like that? I love that. I don't, but you know what I will say that's not a question, but I think is another um, technique of letting them know I want to know more than what they think they need to say to me. Uh, I'll tell them I didn't design the thing. So let's say it's more of like a user interview. I'll make sure that they know I'm not the designer. Um, I have the benefit of being an outside consultant for most of my clients or all of my clients at this point. So I'll say, I'm an outside person. I'm just here to interview you. I really want to know what your opinion is. You know, you're the expert on this thing, kind of like you're saying, and, and let them know that I won't be insulted by anything that they're about to say and that I want to hear 
all the like gory bad stuff so that I can take that back to the team and make that thing better for them. Yeah, yeah I think that's very useful as well. All right, shall we dive into this topic? <laughs> so we had a lot of people from the Sweathead community reply to my tweet asking for the biggest taboos in strategy and planning. And so this is, I'll tell you what I expected first, because there's expectation in reality. Yeah. I expected people to be like, oh, quant research is completely subjective. To me, that's a, a taboo in strategy and planning. And it's like, we look so much at data and, and we think, especially in digital times, like data are everything. However, someone analyzed that data. Like Someone put that data together in a mm -hmm. report. Someone designed those questions. It's kind mm -hmm. of like saying AI is unbiased. Well, I guess, but who designed the AI? So I consider like quant data is subjective as a taboo. What I got was so much more deep and like self-loathing than that. <laughs> so I'll start with one that I, I quite like, which is that strategy is a creative act. What's your take on that? I agree. And I can yeah, I agree too. define it as well. Why do you think it is a creative act? Oh, I, th I think it is a creative act, but I think it's, I agree that it's a taboo to say that because I think then we start to get into the territory of like, if everyone is creative, then how do we maintain the role and title even specifically of creatives, mm -hmm. like with a capital C? And almost like if we say if everyone is strategic, how does one person get to be a strategist? And I worry that if we start to say, well, strategy is creative, then it blurs lines that is not conducive to the way agency models operate. Yeah. So I think it is a taboo in many ways for the reasons that you've outlined. The way that I navigate this is that I do think that creativity is innate in humans as is consciousness. Some people, however, are way more creative. And just because creativity is innate in humans doesn't mean that we just lump everyone together and say, well, therefore the people who have studied it, who practiced it, who've dedicated their lives to it, are like that they're equal with the people who, who haven't, right? Equal's not yeah. the right word there. That's a crappy word. Uh, but then I go into, well, what is creativity? And to me, creativity is combining things that don't usually belong together. The output of that is an idea that is lateral thinking and and that's what strategy people do. They find things and combine them in new ways to predict the future, to, yeah. to, to create new ways of being in the world. So to me, it's just inherently a creative act. Yeah. If everyone is creative, is everyone strategic? I yeah. wouldn't say everyone is strategic, I don't think. Well, then you get to define the words. Isn't this the biggest challenge of our damn profession? Like, what is strategy? Uh, it, yeah, it is. It is, it is a challenge and I, I, like, I don't think there has to be one answer. I just think it's impo important for the practitioner to have a definition that they can walk other people through, find common ground yeah. with those other people yeah. so that there's a shared public definition of the words, right? Yes, yes, totally. Um, for the sake of the work, but also the sake of like, how do we become more collaborative and less contentious, which is also at the core of some of these replies. I don't think everyone is strategic. I think everyone can be strategic. I think strategy is a more, and maybe that's the same with creativity, actually. I think everyone is creative, but not everyone is always thinking creatively. I think it's like different modes of thinking almost. Yeah. Uh, strategy, strategic thinking and doing strategy work and being kind of a strategic person in the pursuit of whatever it is that you're working on, hmm. to me is synthesizing lots of different inputs to plan 
with an intended outcome or moving toward an intended outcome and being able to adjust course along the I can't say strategically adjust course. <laughs> adjust course along the way with the the inputs in front of, the inputs in front of them in that given moment. And I think like that can apply at all. I mean basketball players, incredibly strategic, right? Yeah. So again, it depends how we apply the words. I, I see it as an informed opinion about how to win. You have a situation, mm-hmm. you have information, and then you have like a central idea, an organizing theme or idea that then has steps slash tactics that you can take and you can apply that to dating, to raising children, to raising cows, to lodging taxes, you know, so it just depends on how we define these words and also understanding the, uh, the motivations of the people defining the words. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's to hopefully get to good work and have a bit of fun. Can I throw out another taboo I got back? Yeah, I, I love this. Do it. Yeah. This one shook me mostly because of how many people agreed and how many people said things similar, which is everyone likes talking, but they suck at execution. I feel like that's literally the only problem is the tweet. And that one got me. I saw a lot of tweets back about a taboo being that strategy either is execution or that strategists can't execute in a a way that if strategists can't execute, then that's a bad thing. From where I sit, we're meant to enable execution. We're meant to inspire execution. I don't have the answers. I only have the stimulus. What's your take? It's one of those tropes that people use to devalue people who do think for a living. You know, like I've been in places where planners or heads of planning have been accused of not being good at operations. Well, you didn't hire them to be good at operations. <laughs> That's why there are producers and project managers and account managers. And, and when I work with them, I want them to be thinking creatively and strategically. And if they've got ideas, yeah, share them. So it's just this weird trope that people are like, nye, 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 you can't do anything. It's stupid. Like, what does it even mean? Again, define the words. Otherwise, we're just saying everything's everything, everything's everything, nothing's nothing, therefore whatever. Yeah. I, and to me, that's like, hinting at a real like a deeper self-loathing that might exist in among our community because most of the people replying to this are our fellow strategists and planners so i would say like liberate yourself from the need to be great at tactics and execution i don't see that as being the value you add or i wouldn't have built a consultancy that only does strategy Mm. like if i thought that there was no value in strategy without tactics I'd be setting myself up for a pretty big failure right now. This one's great because I have a lot of strong feelings about briefing. This one is the PowerPoint is a weak tool for shaping perceptions and influencing behaviors. Most people will see it, read it once, and at best remember one slide. Mm. What do you think about that? <laughs> I, I agree. And I think it is a taboo because we as strategists, So as you just alluded to, we think for a living, right? So if we think for a living, just because we don't do an execution and we don't do tactics doesn't mean that we don't need to have some output. Um, And I think part of that is a self-created need to have a thing at the end that is an artifact that we did something that may or may not actually be a need that exists. But I think part of it is external and wanting that external validation of like this or, or representation of that thinking that maybe communicating it in words or in another way isn't enough. And so we put things in decks and decks have become the biggest you know, strategy deliverable. And 
I think it's unbelievably fascinating, particularly in briefs when we're talking about a document, really, and not even a deck, because what we know in 2019 about not only how creativity happens, but just purely how people learn is so antithetical to what a a brief does and what a piece of paper does and how a briefing in agency settings are run. Um, People learn not just from reading a piece of paper, hearing a voiceover on a piece of paper, but they learn by experiencing something watching something, hearing something. There's so many different ways that different people need to engage with a thing to understand it and kind of be motivated by it and inspired by it. And we're giving them one way of engagement right now that is in the context of a whole bunch of other demotivating things like Mm -hmm open office floor plans. <laughs> like, oh, come to the briefing. We'll load you up on soda and like Cheez-Its. Now go be creative, creative people. It's so wrong for how creative process actually works. Yeah. So let me, let me split that into two because we've got the yeah. idea, the taboo that uh, there's an over-reliance on PowerPoint because, well, sometimes there have been discrete deliverables sold in. I think that's a taboo that strategy and planning have to have outputs and deliverables for anyone to pay for them or see them as valuable. I've worked in places where I didn't try to sell a lot of outputs because I wanted planning to be in the work. And there was a bit of a, you know, cultural thing I had to navigate there. And then I've been in other places that are like, where are all the deliverables? I'm like, but the point is the thinking. And at the same time, you know, at some point in history, I heard that Google liked to see ideas presented on a, a poster. And I think Amazon likes a page like one page written up, maybe two. And so there are pretty successful companies and successful people who use the minimum required. Then you've got that taboo of the briefing or the brief. There's two, you know what? There's another two. There's the brief and then the briefing. Let's talk about the brief first. And the brief brief as this like sacred moment of heroism, heroism, which I, I get, I get. Why do you think that is? Why shouldn't it be? Because I think... And I'm currently surveying about this because in the pursuit of starting a business, you know, I had some hypotheses of like how this consultancy would need to run and like what I'm trying to solve. And if I go to brands and have hypotheses, I make those brands pay to test those hypotheses, right? So I'm doing that for myself right now. So I have a survey that I'm actually putting out to test this, but I have a hypothesis that briefs aren't inspiring to creative teams. And so I I am testing this and I want to confirm, but from the informal interviews I've done to date and from the analysis of my own briefs and briefings with creative teams is that currently, I think the amount of them that we have to do and in the limited amount of time that we have to do them and the times at which we use the brief, because I would argue that not every project requires a creative brief, that it has distilled it down into nothing more than like a project plan that's worded nicely for the creative team with some thought starter ideas Mm. that I think many of them truly lack a great insight. And without a great insight, what are we proposing that the brief is really doing aside aside from giving the creatives an assignment, which the account team could just do? Yes, I totally can recognize that behavior. I mean, even you kind of got these brand slash campaign briefs, which could be quite short, problem audience insight, et cetera. And then I think it's because of the number of channels that exist now, people are like, hang on, can I fit a communications plan in? So then another page or two gets added and then someone goes, hang on, what about the project plan? And then you 
I've seen five to 10 page briefs. I'm like, that's not brief. What is that? So is the issue you think with the brief as an, the idea of a brief, the content of a brief, the template of a brief, the culture in which these briefs operate, the lack of discipline that people have with these briefs? Like what's the actual issue? Because it's, it's a big call just to say a brief doesn't matter. For sure. All of it and nothing. I, I think the main thing is the format. Um, I really think that typed piece of paper isn't inspiring. We expect people to read so much. Like The amount of information we have access to now is unbelievable, whether it's different trend reports, subscriptions that we're getting, or daily newsletter emails that we're getting. The amount of information we have to consume, whether we're a strategist or we're not, or we're on the receiving end of the brief, and then we're asking them, hey, take this additional piece of paper really seriously, even if there's a great insight in there or like a great um, provocative taboo nugget that's going to get them, you know, thinking or really coming at the problem in a unique way. I think the format is inherently demotivating and uninspiring. I would argue that we could be delivering briefs in a way that actually is more tactile and and tangible. And so this is what I've been trying to do in my work, again, as a test of this hypothesis. So I briefed in something recently. Um, It was an activation. We staged the room so that it had like putt-putt around the room. And we brought in tons of um, summary refreshments. So like summer type beers and mocktails and things like that. We had the briefing at the end of the day. Uh, We played a bunch of videos from this particular major PGA tour event to get people in the mindset of what it's like to be at that event. So some of the videos were ones that I found on YouTube that were filmed with GoPros of people there. Some were more commentary or like major PGA milestones that had happened at this golfing event. And it was about getting everyone in the room really comfortable with the culture of what we were talking about, excited about it, and in a mindset where they were more receptive to hearing about what they could add to that culture or how they might have influence over something that happens there. And so was the brief still an artifact in that process? Yes. But I think the format of delivery of here's a piece of paper, now I'm going to walk you through everything that's on that paper is inherently uninspiring. Yeah. Yeah. I would call that a peak experience. You know, it turns on our psychology in a different way. Uh, Lucy Cochran, who I interviewed, I think she won an APG award years ago for some, for a briefing. I think it was about the blind dog association in Australia. And part of the briefing was blindfolding, I think the creative team at a bus stop in Melbourne and it gets people to feel rapid empathy now, these peak experiences, I, I think they have to be, they have to have a kind of risk element to them to turn us on. Cause I've, I've been in these weird cooking, like half day cooking sessions for, I don't know, like soup. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I kind of, I know how to cook soup. It's cool. I, I, this is not leading me to any ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have a point of view on how to heighten the emotion in a briefing and, and not just for theater, but for, a severe empathy shock. A hundred percent because there is the, like the theatrical element of it. And I, I don't mean this to be performative. I'm, I almost mean it as less of a performance and more of a consensus building exercise that like, we're all in this together. Look at this thing that we get to be a part of, not we have to do something for. Um, it's about helping to shift the mindset and get everyone on board with an opportunity or way of thinking an idea. A better example, perhaps that is 
maybe less performative and more jarring or provocative, or I, I guess like you're saying, like that actually it becomes more of a brain exercise than a half day requirement. It's working with a healthcare company, which anytime you start, like I was working with a healthcare company, everyone's like, oh, here we go. This is definitely the most boring thing you've ever said. But hmm. these two women actually started a healthcare, um, like a wellness portal that insurance companies can use to sell to their end. It's like a B2B service, but basically for employees are the end users and they can do these like health and wellness challenges. And so I just asked, I was like, have you, you know, what is your experience with doing health and wellness challenges? So we did a workshop over three days that was designed to basically be a health and wellness challenge for the two women who started this, this B2B service. And of course, I didn't tell them that it was meant to be a health and wellness challenge, but each day I brought in an outside subject matter expert. So that is a key thing that you can think about doing is like when we talk about needing to change the format, the format might just be you. If you're in an agency and you're working with these people all day, try mixing up who's delivering the information because they have to hear from you all the time and they're going to be collaborating with you throughout the process and you can evangelize for that moving forward. Hmm. But if you bring in an outside subject matter expert who maybe has some authority or a provocative point of view, they'll listen. So with these, um, these two co-founders, we brought in a nutritionist one day to come and cook us a meal and tell us a little bit about how she thinks about meal planning, um, how she thinks some of her most successful clients that she does meal planning for, what's different about them, what gets them motivated, what gets them excited. A different day, we had someone come and do a private yoga session for us. Um, so they had to spend an hour doing yoga with me. You know, this is the stuff you're telling your end users to do. Like, are you doing it? Like, do yeah. you know what you're asking them to do? And it was fun. Like, it wasn't anything that was meant to be painful. But it was like, if we're going to kick off the day together, we're in San Diego. Like, let's have someone come and do a private yoga session with us. Oh, San Diego. Oh. Uh, right? Yeah. I, I, was kind of, I was just writing down a typology of briefings based on some of the themes you were talking about. And for some, I, I got to four. Don't know if they're correct. Maybe there are more. But let me see if there's anything missing from it. First one is, and this is not necessarily that they're all good, but here's, here are the things that I've seen. Uh, a briefing that is about aggressively informing people, you know, and these things are sometimes half day, full day sessions, 30 people in the room, all the agencies and consultants have like job titles that match each other because no one wants to be seen as less prestigious than each other. There's like yeah, the, yeah. Entire, the entire history of the brand, all the data and everything. And then a brief that's kind of like marketing jargon. I've seen these a lot of times and it's always in a business park in the middle of nowhere. So that's one. Then the team bonding experience, which sounds oh, yes. Right. Uh, yep, th yep. Then, then there's the creative dare. So obviously, I'm moving into things I like, and then the empathy shock. And it sounds like some of the things you've been designing do a bit of a bit of all of them without the aggressive informing. Sure, um, because I don't think aggressive informing is as inspirational. And I believe, and I don't think every strategist agrees with this. I believe, and maybe this is a taboo, strategy is in service of creative. Mm -hmm. I think strategy is meant to inspire, is meant to set up great creative solutions. It's to, meant to set up great design solutions. Design meaning not just graphic design or UX design, but designing the solutions to problems. Yeah, I totally agree. And then we can get into a bit of a word knot where someone could listen to this and kind of poo poo some of this because we're saying that strategy is creative and strategy is in service of creative. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Therefore, the formula is creative is in service of creative, but we're using the word creative differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, do you want to give me another another two taboos? This is really funny because it's directly in response to what we just said, which is not every strategist love brain, loves brainstorms. So there's a taboo, I guess, that not every strategist loves brainstorms. I mean, you had said offline not to put you on the spot, but we were talking about conferences and you were like, I'm just like not a fan of being around a lot of people. What's your take of brainstorms? I don't mind running group sessions. I quite enjoy it. But as I've, as I've aged... I have become more selfish and I believe that the sessions serve me or the small group who's running them and then needs to use them. So I like brainstorms as stimulus. What I do not like is when they're acts of politics or when they're performative, someone's either brought an idea that they're trying to sell and then someone like me has to run this brainstorm. It's a complete artificial situation, which happened to me when I'm young, when I was young or the other one where there's 10 people in the room, half of them aren't paying attention and you've got to get to an answer that everyone agrees to in four hours for the whole year. Yeah. One of my partners, so one of my partners is a creative director and a very strategic creative director. Again, we'll get into like a word not over her being a strategic creative director and what that even means. She has a copy and content background in particular, but she hates brainstorms. <laughs> she hates brainstorms for a specific reason, which is that she doesn't believe the idea process is that fast or can be that fast. And her fear is that many, and I don't disagree, is that agencies in a need to do everything faster and better than they've been doing them in the past, look at brainstorms as an opportunity to get to a solution faster. And she doesn't believe we're using brainstorms properly in that like, you shouldn't be expected that an idea you come out of a brainstorm with is even close to a half-baked version of one of the ideas that you might end up with. And unfortunately, due to time constraints, what you end up with in the brainstorm is often what the team is often running, trying to do. And she calls it polishing a turd. Hmm. Yeah. Like you're just trying to polish turds because you only had three hours to think about that thing. And it's like, especially if it's a brief and brainstorm where you brief it in and then, okay, now let's brainstorm. And then you leave having thought about that thing that you empathized with for 30 seconds. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think part of that's about everyone wants to be involved at every point and having ideas is fun and doing strategy is fun and people want to be involved with it. And in some larger places, optics matter. So people want to be seen to be thinking and to and being creative. Like that's part of the game that they think they have to play. I don't write brainstorms off. Uh, however, 15 people sitting in a room in a non-structured way is not great or a brainstorm that is only made for extroverts where everyone has to talk over each other or at each other. Not useful. You've got to cater to the introverts, but more importantly, you've got to allow the brain to tick over in the following days so that that shower or that long walk, all the stuff we know where the brain, I think the alpha waves change and you get ideas. Yeah. So yeah. things together. You have to allow that to happen. Exactly. And I think that's what what Ashley is often talking about is that like we have to be more empathetic to the creative process and that there's stuff that goes unseen that is incredibly important to how ideas are made and how solutions come about that can't just be manufactured in a room just because that's the time that everyone's calendar is open. And so I would argue that if we want to have better brainstorms and if we want to have better briefs, we need to really be examining what the creative process looks like overall. I think we need more time. Mm -hmm. I think we need people to be allowed out of the office a lot more. I think we talk about people being allowed out of the office, but then we fill their calendar with meetings all day. Yep. So it's like, yeah, you're allowed to work from home whenever you want. Oh, but 
if you're working from home, you still have to join these meetings from 9am to 6pm all day, every day. And it's like, well, it kind of defeats the purpose of like fresh air and stimulus and exploring and ruminating on an idea. Yeah. And I think while we're saying taboos are a useful frame of reference, provocative frame of reference to think of insights, I kind of think meetings are the opposite of creativity and the opposite of collaboration writers rooms are probably the, the closest example of a meeting that's useful where people have ideas and they kick things around and they're not precious yeah, and they listen to laughter can you can you give me one last taboo that really stuck with you from your tweet about taboos in strategy and planning yeah i think this brings it back full circle a little bit so we got one from dan hill that says being subjectively interesting is more important than being objectively right yeah baby i would yeah baby <laughs> i don't disagree However, I don't disagree because there is no right. And that is also, again, one of the hardest things about strategy is that we don't know. Maybe the biggest taboo of all, we don't know the answer. We don't know the answer. Some people who are a little bit more conservative, they would say that's postmodernist. And here's the thing. I kind of see strategy as postmodernism in the name of capitalism. I just think that's what it is. Why? Because you're constantly... Constantly deconstructing things, you're deconstructing things, reassembling things, hoping that you have a good answer. Right or wrong is not a useful uh, binary in this at all. You know, the subjective is what's interesting. Right and wrong to me is not interesting. I think we're seeing this way beyond strategy. Um, And I don't want to take us too far down a rabbit hole, but there is no binary. There's an entire um, beautiful gradient that exists between the binary. And I think if things are black and white, they're just not interesting and we're probably not looking at it the right way. I think that the subjectivity is what makes something juicy, creative, provocative, interesting, inspiring to a team. If there's one solution and one right way to do it, then we're just, we're just producing stuff. We're just, they're the hands that are designing the thing that someone wants. Yeah. So we've talked about a few taboos. We've talked about strategy as a creative act. We mm-hmm. talked about people thinking that strategists like to talk and they can't execute or don't <laughs> like to execute. We've talked PowerPoints and briefing. Well, yeah. Briefs and briefing and PowerPoint and deliverables. We've talked about the typology of briefings as well. We, I want to wish you play with that one a little bit more. Strategy being in service of creative brainstorms, whether they're useful at all or, or I think I think with a lot of these things, it's like in what circumstances are these things useful or good? Or good's not the right word, but like in, in what circumstances do these things work as opposed to whether they're right or wrong or true or false? Yeah. Uh, and then subjectively interesting, interesting being more useful than being objectively, objectively right. right. I dig it. We covered a lot of ground today, Caitlin. We sure did. We're so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I, look, it's not it's not often that I have uh, someone to interview who has a structure of an interview for me. I love it. I can just it's like having a creative brief. I just get to fill it in and then send it off. Right. You know what? I can't turn the strategy off, Mark. I can't turn it off. Uh, where are you most active on the internet? I'm Caitlin Maud on all social media, K-A-I-T-L-I-N-M-A-U-D, like the first name. Find me on Twitter's CaitlinMaud.com. And then my consultancy is Current Forward. It's Current FWD on all digital platforms. How postmodern. Well, good luck with the new consulting. And thank you thank for you. doing so much homework for this interview. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, it was great to be here and, and finally get to talk to you in this format. I think everything the sweat headers are doing is awesome. 
that's uh it's a good little community it's on facebook for those who are not familiar with it there's thousands of people talking about these things all right caitlin come join us it's so fun (laughs) thank you so much for joining us today caitlin appreciate it thanks mark peace